Sorry, some of you don't. There we go. All right. <laughs> My apologies. All right. Uh, so it was, it was like, it was 2007, December of 2007, the very first time I stepped foot in this church. And I remember I was sitting over there, like I could point out the seat. And the first time I ever came here, I did not want to come to the chapel, I'll be honest. I was invited by um, my friend's mom. She invited me to the church. And so I was like, and I wanted her, my, you know, my friend's mom to like me, not think I was some kind of hooligan. So I was like, okay, well, I'll go. I'll check it out. And I came and I really liked it. Like, you know, you got coffee when you came in. The music was good. The pastors were good. And so I just started coming to the chapel. And it really didn't have an impact in my life other than just I felt like a good person because I was like, okay, well, I go to church now. Um, but th- over, over time... God started to work in my life, and, and my problem was, at this time, was that I had a severe addiction to alcohol, and uh, I'll be honest, there were times when I would have two drinks before I got to the 9 a.m. service, and it got to the point in my life where, like, I realized if this didn't change, I was either going to end up, you know, probably uh, in prison or in a box in the ground because it was that bad, and so it was a Saturday in June. I went home, I had been drinking, and I was in my basement on, on, laying on the floor on my face, and I started to have a discussion with God, and I made an ultimatum with God, and I don't know if this is theologically correct, and I'm not saying that you should do this, because God could have just smited me right in that moment, but I said, all right, Jesus, if you are who all these people at the church say you are, because I didn't believe any of it, if you're really God, and you can take away my alcoholism, I'll live the rest of my life for you, and then boom, just like that. No lightning, no thunder, no voice from the heavens, but I knew something inside of me had changed. And I woke up the next morning, and I just, I knew that I wasn't going to drink anymore, that God had changed me. And so I told my friends, and I told my family, and obviously none of them believed me because they had heard that story before, but it was the first Father's Day that I spent sober with my kids. And today is the 14th Father's Day that I've spent sober with my kids. Yeah. And I just, I never went back. You know, I never went back to that. And, and I, I thank you for your applause, but I really got to deflect it because the reality is it was all God's grace and all God's faithfulness because I'm not the type of person to just pull myself together and just get it together, all right? God did all of it from the beginning to the end. And if you would have told me the very first time I came to this church that I would be a pastor here giving this message someday, you might as well have told me I was gonna be an astronaut. Like, I would have said you were absolutely crazy. But here I am because God has been faithful. And the reason that I tell you that, and let me just pause for a second. I struggle to tell you that story for a couple reasons. One, you might be going through something right now. You know, maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's something else, uh, an illness, some other addiction, some, some family problems. Whatever it is, and you're like, hey, that's a great story, but, like, where's my breakthrough? Why doesn't God answer my prayer like that? And the reality is I don't know. The only thing that I could think of is, like, I, I probably never would have made it to this point in my life if he hadn't done something radical. And I also don't, I struggle to tell you that because I don't want to stand up here and act like I've got it all together or that I've arrived because I have not. I am a mess just like every one of you. But God is still working in our lives. And so the reason that I tell you that story is because I have learned that God is on a divine quest. And we're going to see that today in the book of Acts, that God is on a divine quest. And who is God looking for? Well, he is looking for the least likely. All right, he searches for people who are down and out. He searches for people who are empty. He searches for people who are hurting, who are vulnerable, who have no skills or abilities. People like you, people like me, because I was a bartender for eight years, and then I went into ministry, as you do. You know, it's like, I don't have any gifts or abilities to do what I do, but God has called me and qualified me to do this. And the other thing is not only is our God looking for the least likely, he's also looking for those who are the least deserving. 
those who are so messed up, who have nothing going on, whose lives are falling apart, but he's also looking for people who, whose lives are all together, who think they have it all going on, who think they don't need God, they're prideful, they're stubborn, people who are even against God, persecuting the church. God is on the divine quest for the least likely and the least deserving. So he's on a divine quest for people like you and people like me. And he'll do whatever he has to to reach us, which makes sense that Jesus would say this in Matthew 18, 12 through 14. He says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out to search for the one that is lost? And if he finds it, I tell you the truth, he will rejoice over it more than, 99, more than the 99 that didn't wander away. In the same way, it is not my heavenly, father, my heavenly Father's will that even one of these little ones should perish. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are or what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've done or what you're doing. Our God is on the quest for the least likely and least deserving. And in Acts 9, we're going to see that so vividly in the account of Paul, who was known as Saul. Because we're going to learn that Jesus can find you, that he can care for you, and he can use you no matter where you are or where you've been. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 9 today. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up to Acts chapter 9. We're going to start right at verse 1. If you want to use the YouVersion app, you can use that on your phone as well. And we'll have the text for you on the screen if you would like to follow along. But let's hear about Saul's conversion in Acts 9. So it says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He, request, he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they had heard the sound of someone's voice but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. So earlier in Acts 8, we see that Saul, he was, he was going after Christians, and he actually uh, approved the execution of Stephen, who was one of the, one of the followers of Jesus. And, and Saul just starts to tear apart the church. Saul was fiercely uh, seeking to destroy the church, and he was dragging followers of Jesus, men and women, off to prison, and he was murdering those who resisted this. So he was focused on stomping out any talk of this Jesus, this resurrected Christ. And we see in, nine, in chapter 9, verse 1, that he's still doing this. He's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, those who follow Jesus. Saul is eager to destroy anyone who belongs to the way. So before anyone was called a Christian, they were called a part of the way, which is a reference to what Jesus said in John 14, 6. I'm reminded of it every time I drive from Norwalk to Sandusky. It's on that billboard on 250 where Jesus says this. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. I love that the early church was called the way because at, the point, at this point, the church was focused on one thing. They were focused on seeing people inherit eternal life, redemption, and salvation through Jesus Christ, 
who was called the way. The way was not focused on lifestyle, not on serving, not on music preferences, not on politics or morality or argument or agreement on social issues, any of those things. It was solely focused on knowing and trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone for the salvation of his sins. That's it. And that was so attractive. It was so attractive to the, to the people of Israel because they had learned their entire life that the law, okay, this massive book of rules was that they had to follow in order to earn their salvation, in order to be loved and approved by God. They had to follow all of these religious rules. And, and so this new, this new uh, belief of the way that Jesus alone and what he did on the cross was the way to salvation was so attractive. And, and, it's, and it still is today, but here's the problem. When we mess that up, when we start to add rules or regulations or things on to salvation through grace alone, we start to put walls up around Jesus for people. All right, and, and I, what you might hear me saying and what I'm not saying is that you, you might hear me saying, well, we don't have any standards. That's not true. It's not about not having any standards. If you come to this church and you become a member or you're in leadership here or you're, you're on staff, there, there are standards. There's accountability. But you might be thinking, well, if we don't have any type of standards, then just anybody will come here. Great! <laughs> Here's the thing. We believe in this process. Belong, believe, become. When you step your foot through the walls or through the doors of this church, you belong here. This is your church. You belong here. And we hope, our prayer is that through God's spirit working in you, that you would take those steps closer, that you would eventually believe in this one who we call Jesus, the resurrected savior of the world, and that he died on the cross for your sins, and that through faith in him, you can be saved. And that, and that after believing, we hope that you'll start to become more like Jesus in the way that you live. And that, that through his spirit, that you'll start to change. But some Churches, unfortunately, are the opposite. They say, well, you gotta get it together. You've gotta look like us, dress like us, vote like us, think like us, behave like us, then you can come to our church. Then you belong. That's not the way. That's religion. Saul was so against the way because the teaching of the synagogues, of the law, what Saul was a master at was all about keeping the law for salvation. But the way was all about salvation by grace through faith. So what Saul was taught his whole life was being undermined by the way and their message. And I think sometimes we just get a little bit of that about us. We get a little bit into that old, dusty religion. We get a little bit of Saul dust. You're going to get that on the way home, and then you're going to laugh. And you're like, oh, Saul dust. That guy's funny. Okay. Maybe, just maybe, sometimes we've got a little bit of Saul in us. And we start to think that, yes, we're saved by grace, but then, you know, you got to act right. You know, we change, or Jesus changes. And they would think, well, we've earned something, right? So we start to say, okay, yeah, I know that person that comes to church. Yeah, I know they're saved, but they're just saved kind of weird. You know, they don't, they're just different. Maybe they don't belong. No, that's not how it is. That's the law. That's not grace. So for Saul, if the way continued, the synagogues, what he had based his whole life on, would lose patrons, would lose money, would lose power, would lose status. And we find out that's what's behind it. That's what's behind it. Because salvation by grace alone can pose some threats to maybe some underlying beliefs or thoughts or power structures that maybe you and I have placed in our lives as Christians. Right? We start to think that maybe we've earned our status, our salvation. That maybe it's like, yeah, Jesus, I know you saved me by faith, but I'm a pretty good guy, so I'm probably like one of your favorites, right? 
And when it comes to someone that doesn't fit our particular narrative of what a Christian is, then our inner Saul starts to come out. And Saul, he wasn't having it. He searched for the people that belonged to the way. And he sets his sight on Damascus, which tells us something very chilling, because that means that his work in Jerusalem was done. That every person who belonged to the way, who was a follower of Jesus, had, had either been scattered or persecuted or put in the grave. Saul was really, really good at what he did. And so with his sight set on Damascus, Saul goes to the high priest and asks for permission to go search for those who belong to the way. And, and the high priest gives him what's, what he needs, which shows that this religious evil was so ingrained that even the leadership was behind it. But you see, God had other plans. Because little did Saul know that God was on a divine quest for his soul. So in the road to Damascus, Saul was found by Jesus. They're walking along, there's this blinding flash, and then suddenly Saul's lying in the dirt, all right? And he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul didn't know who he's speaking to. He says, so he says, who was speaking to him? So he says, who are you, Lord? And he uses that Lord kind of in a way like we would use the term sir. And he hears the most amazing answer to his question. I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. So Saul, Saul, Jesus stops Saul completely dead in his tracks, but why? He did this so that Saul can know the truth. The first truth that, that Jesus wanted Saul to know was that Jesus was alive. Because at this point in Acts, <clears throat> everything Saul stood for was based on the fact that Jesus was dead. Right? They believed that, that, that Jesus died on the cross, that the resurrection was a hoax, that the body had been stolen, or whatever it was. <clears throat> they believed that Jesus was dead. But now, since he was found by Jesus, he knew, he knew the truth, that Jesus was alive, and he still is today. And that, that is the truth that the church is built on. That's why we're here. If Jesus wasn't resurrected, none of this makes sense. And the second truth that, that Jesus wanted Paul to know was this that he was persecuting Jesus. Because when, when Paul was persecuting Christians, he was actually persecuting Jesus. And so here we see the beautiful unity between Jesus and us as his followers. We are his body on earth. Not metaphorically, not figuratively, but literally his body here on earth. So when Saul was persecuting someone who had this unity with Jesus, he was persecuting Jesus as well. I'll give you an example. It's kind of like, Let's say somebody was, like, attacking my kids. I'm not going to be like, that's their problem, you know, like, I got to learn. No, <laughs> if you mess with my kids, you mess with me, right? I'm not just going to stand there and be like, hey, that's all right. You know, I'm going to go after them. So in the same way, we understood that there is a unity between us and Jesus. Even, and so even though, so, so there's this blinding light, Paul, or Saul gets knocked to the ground, and even though he's physically blind in this moment, the truth of, he saw the truth of who Jesus was, and that no matter what he was doing, he was never going to stop the church. There, is no, there were no Saul's back then, there are no Saul's today who are going to stop what Jesus is doing. Jesus said in Matthew 16, he said, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that is still true. Jesus found Saul so that he could know the truth, and he also found Saul so that we could know two things were true. The first one is this that Jesus finds us. He finds us right where we are on our journey. 
Following Jesus is not about where you should be, it's about where you are, and I love that. Jesus does not say, hey, get your life together, quit doing these things, start doing these things, go on a mission trip, get baptized, do all these things, and then you can start following me. No, Jesus says, you just follow me, and I'm gonna show you the way. Saul was on a journey, and Jesus shows up. And the second truth is this, that Jesus chooses who he will find. In verse 15, it, he tells the Lord tells this, this disciple, Ananias, that he found Saul to use him for a specific reason, which is why Paul, Saul, Saul eventually, his name is changed to Paul, he says this in Ephesians. He says, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. Jesus found Saul because he had a purpose for his life, and he does the same for us. So after Saul is found, he was cared for by Jesus. So Saul, now he's blind, he can't see, he's being led to Damascus by the people that are with him, and they find this place on Straight, on Straight Street owned by, um, by Judas, and he stays there for three days. And so while they're there, God decides to care for Saul through a man named Ananias. So in, an, in a vision, Ananias, God tells Ananias to go to the house where Saul is at and to lay his hands on him so that he can regain his sight. And just like any of us, I think Ananias probably had some reservations. You know, God is telling him, hey, I need you to go and you're gonna lay your hands on Saul. And Ananias is like, Saul, you mean like the Christian killer Saul? And God's like, yeah. And I just feel like if I was Ananias and God is like, hey, I need you to go, help the Christian killer guy, I'd be like, oh, God, you know, I got a dentist appointment that day. Pastor Todd's off. I think he would go. Yes, Pastor Todd could totally go and do that. You know, he's, Ananias has heard about Saul and about what Saul was doing to people who belonged to the way. And guess, guess who Ananias belongs to? He belongs to the way. So his fear is understandable. So God tells him his plans for Saul. God says this to Ananias. But the Lord said, go for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as the people of Israel. So Ananias leaves his house and he goes to Saul in obedience to Jesus. This is beautiful that even though Ananias was probably terrified, he was faithful. He was faithful to what Jesus was calling him to do. And when he arrived, he goes up to Saul and here's what happens. So Ananias went out and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul is cared for by Jesus. Jesus cares for Saul's greatest needs. He does two things. He gives him physical sight and he gives him spiritual sight. You know, remember, when Jesus was alive, he would find someone who was blind, who was crippled, who was a leper, and he would heal them. He would heal them because of their faith in him. 
That's the same Jesus that still exists today. He's still doing those same things. And, not, and it wasn't just their physical problem. The physical healing was a sign of something greater. One of my favorite stories of healing in the Gospels is this. Jesus is preaching at a house. He's teaching at a house, and it's packed, all right? The house is full. People are standing outside the doors and windows just trying to hear him. And so these four guys, they have a friend who's, who's crippled. He can't walk. He's paralyzed. And they, they hear that Jesus is in town. So they're like, look, all we got to do is get our friend to Jesus and Jesus Jesus is going to take care of them. So they get there, and, you know, they can't even get close to the house. So these four guys get this bright idea, that, hey, we're going to tear a hole in the roof and lower them down. And I don't know what the homeowner's insurance policies were like back then. Was that a, is that an act of God? If then, okay. So they lower him down in front of Jesus, and the homeowner's probably like, what are you doing? And Jesus looks at this paralyzed guy on a mat and says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the guy's probably laying there like, hey, that's great, but uh, I don't know if you can tell or not, I can't walk. That's not what I came here for. But you see, Jesus knew something that that man didn't know. If he had only healed his legs, he would have been healed. That would have, that would have helped him for, what, 80 years of his life? But what about his eternity? He knew that his greatest need was not his physical healing, but his, but his forgiveness of his sins. And so the healing that Jesus did physically always mirrored something deeper, that Jesus was healing our hearts. And the same thing happens with Saul. The physical scales falling to the ground mirrored Saul's spiritual transformation. The eyes of Saul's heart had been opened. When, when I put my faith in Jesus... The weirdest thing happened, and it, I love that this, the line in Amazing Grace where it says, I once was blind and now I see. It was like the eyes of my heart had been opened. I know that sounds weird, but it was like all of a sudden I could finally see who Jesus really was, and I could see just how much he loved me and how much damage my sin had caused to myself and to those around me. I could finally see the reality. And I know that sounds so weird, but maybe you've experienced that as well, too. And, and so Jesus did for Saul what Saul can never do for himself, and he does the same for us. He cares for our greatest need, which is spiritual transformation. But the question all of this, behind all of this, I think, is why? Why does Jesus find us and care for us? Well, here's why. In Acts 9.15... It says, but, but the Lord said, go, this is what he says to Ananias. He says, go for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. Saul was chosen by God to carry his name forward to people who had not heard of Jesus. God found and cared for Saul because he had a specific plan for his life. And he does the same thing with Ananias, which means God does not just care for you, find you, care for you, heal you, and then just say, all right, see you later. All right, you're on your own. No, God has a plan and a purpose for every single one of your lives. And maybe you don't feel that way, but I love in Ephesians 2.10, it says, for we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared to advance for us to do. And maybe you're hearing you don't feel like a masterpiece, but that's not true. God created you. You were not an accident. You may have been a surprise, but you were not an accident. God does not just find you and care for you and then just let you go. God has a plan and a purpose for your life, and he, and he finds you and he cares for you so that he can work through you. But what God wants from us is exactly the same thing that he wanted from Paul and from Ananias. All God wants from us is faithfulness. Ananias was faithful. Paul was faithful. 
And the question is, are you and I being faithful to this God who has called us to live for him? Because, church, if all we do is get together on a Sunday and have this holy party, and then we don't go out and make a difference in this world, then we're missing it. Because God has called every single one of us to be agents of his healing and transforming grace into a broken world, but that requires faithfulness. So again, God is on a divine quest for the least likely, the least deserving. He's on a divine quest for people like you and me. And Jesus can find you, and he can care for you, and he can work through you no matter where you've been, what, you're, what you've done, or what you're doing. The question is, how are we willing to be faithful to him in our lives? Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time together with you. God, thank you for the story of Saul. God, how him and Ananias were so faithful to you, being willing to do whatever you called them to do no matter what. And so, God, I pray for us, God, that this message would not just resonate in our hearts, but then not result in anything this week. But, God, I pray that we would, that we would be inspired by this, God, and understand that you have called us to live with a plan and a purpose for our lives, that we would go out and literally be your body, be agents of your healing and transforming grace into a broken world this week, whether it's at our jobs, uh, with our teammates, with our classmates, with our friends, with our family, whoever it is. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.